heart and soul of the film are the face-to-face -face interviews, which are far less delicate than one might expect. And all the deeper for it. That's John Anderson. <laughs> Not the sports center anchor, but Wall Street Journal. Talking about our featured film this week still, a Michael J. Fox movie. Cannot wait to talk to you all about it. Chris also has watched it. You know, I, I adore Michael J. Fox, and that's what was so great to watch a documentary about him and his life, first person, talking about all that he's been through. Although I'll tell you some of my disappointment with the documentary as well. So we'll get into that in just a second. I liked it, because I, I, I love Michael J. Fox, but I thought could have gone longer, could have gone deeper. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, our old movie this week, rather than an old movie, I read David Milch's book, which is fantastic. It came out last year. Um, it's his memoir. For those that don't know, David Milch is the writer of NYPD Blue, co-creator, and he created and wrote Deadwood. He unfortunately got diagnosed with dementia a few years ago and uh, Alzheimer's. So he wrote this book with the help of his wife and his kids, and at times, it's hysterically lucid writing because he's saying, this is how I remember it, but then again, you're talking to a guy who's losing his mind. <laughs> so he's an unreliable narrator at times, but he said, he goes, I'm cobbling together what I remember, plus my wife remembers what I'd written down, what my kids are telling me about, and it ends up being his life story. And it's it's fascinating. It's funny. It's interesting. There's lots of great anecdotes. So that's going to be our old, talking about old shows. The first casualty of the writer strike now impacting Cinefa for me and Cody. So we were supposed to have David Grant on this week. He is the writer of Killers of the Flower Moon. For those who are unaware, that's a new Martin Scorsese film. It's coming out at the Cannes Film Festival later this month. It stars DiCaprio, De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Lily Gladstone. Can't wait, right? It's the first Marty movie at Cannes, I think since After Hours in 85. The movie, oh, by the way, will be coming out in America, I believe, in November of this year. So it's like, oh, we'll have David Grant on. Again, the movie's premiering at Cannes, which is the International Film Festival in France. Talk about what relationship he had with Scorsese, Eric Roth wrote the script, etc. Get the message from Laura Brandt last night. David's happy to come on. He can talk about the book, but he can't talk at all about the movie because the writer's strike. So just as you and I were talking about the writer's <laughs> strike last week, that's not going to impact us. What's the big deal? It's impacted us because immediately I canceled the interview. I said, well, the whole point to have mom was, hey, did you talk to De Niro? Did you talk to DiCaprio? What did Marty say about this? So writer's strike impacting us, Cody. We were almost back. <laughs> we were almost back, but I'm, I'm getting an author review on, and I'm going to tease ahead to next week. I mean, Eva Marie is going to be on. For those who are unaware, just Google Eva Marie, former wrestler turned actress, bombshell, huge San Francisco Giants fan. It, it's going to be amazing next week, so I cannot wait to talk to her. Huge fan of her work and what she brings to the table. Also, props to David Sampson. I didn't look it up. I, I, we did last week top five De Niro movies in honor of Bob having his 79th child. Sorry. <laughs> At the age of 79, having a child. Having a seventh child at the age of 79. 79 child. I was on Calgary Radio last week with my buddy Logan Gordon. And he goes, we got to talk De Niro. I said, yeah. He goes, he goes, seventh. I go, how about the way it came out? E.T. Canada, of all places, Entertainment Site Canada. Hey, what kind of a father are you? He's promoting his new film about my father with Sebastian Maniscalco. Yes, we asked for Sebastian Maniscalco. Yes, he passed. But look forward to the film coming out in a couple weeks. <laughs> and De Niro said, um, she goes, you know, being the father of six, he goes, oh, seven, actually. She said, wait, what? Yeah, I just had another kid, 79 years old. And my buddy Logan said to me, he goes, wait, what would it take for you to have a child at 79? <laughs> I said, the only way of having a child at 79 is if it's with Monica Bellucci. Yeah. And, Monica, <laughs> and Monica Bellucci's 14 years older than me. She'd be 93 years old, for God's sakes. But... Cody, you and I have discussed before. I, I said, I, I hope you have multiple children. You go, I'm not sure about that, Adnan. We got one daughter. We're, we're working hard. But now just imagine, put yourself in the mind space. 79 years old, having another child. We can move the goalposts on this. Like, imagine 59. 
Even that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. like, like, there's a stop. There's many stops before 79 where I would be like, I think that's about it. I think I'm good. Yeah, here. you and I both became, I think, by by today's standards, relatively young dads. I became a dad at 29, turning 30. I think you were around the same, same. age, right? 30, exactly yeah. 30. Yeah. So like, you're, I'm sure in your group, they're like, oh wow, Cody, having a kid already, right? Like, I'm assuming because I know a lot of buddies who are 35, 36, 38. It ranges yeah. though. I had some friends that had kids early, but yeah, right. for the most part, you're right. I, I would say about average though. I wouldn't say early. I would say. Okay. Yeah, so we're about average being at 30. Yeah. So then imagine, like, you know, I have friends who have had kids now in their 40s. And I'm like, geez. Like, they're like, oh, it's awesome. Like, congratulations. And then my head, I'm like, because you know it. You and I know it. The stamina to potty train and to change diapers and to be yeah. up in the middle of the night. I'm like, that, when you're 30, you can do it. When you're 45, I'm like, dude, so, I'm turning 45 this summer. I, I couldn't imagine. And trust me, I have a four and a half year old. I'm still exhausted. I could have a newborn child to, at, at 45, at 49, at 59, at 70. And I, and I get it. De Niro's not like you and me. He's not getting up in the middle of the night. Probably not. Maybe he is. I'll give him credit. Maybe he is. But probably has a nanny, all the rest of it, but still. You're not yeah. sleeping? <laughs> you're not sleeping? <laughs> He's doing the De Niro face. I was doing the child. face. This is just me over the crib. You're not asleep? You're not sleepy? I don't know what I'm doing here. He um, just gets mad at his kid. To Billy's point, though, Billy Gill on the Levitard show, What at what point does it become selfish? Yeah. And, like, you know what I mean? It's like... Well, here's the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess he's not... Uh... Maybe he slipped on past the goalie, or he doesn't believe in birth control. Either way. I mean, they could have had an abortion. I, 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 I don't want to wade into these waters. But perhaps, you know, this is his decision with his girlfriend. They chose to have the child. To Billy's point, okay, so Tony Randall is who I thought of. Tony Randall, the great actor, did not have his first child until he was 77 years old. Oh. Now, this is different. Bob's got six kids. His eldest kid is 51 years old. But Tony Randall never had a kid. 77, has a child, goes, oh, my God, I should have done this earlier. He's dead at 84. So life expectancy is 80. I think De Niro takes care of himself, but he's battled prostate cancer, but he's in pretty good shape. He's 79. Let's suppose he dies at 84. I mean, I'd love to ask a six-year-old child, like, if you had a choice, if Robert De Niro could be your father, you're only going to have six, you're probably not going to remember him, but your dad, you can always see your whole life, my dad is Robert De Niro, and hopefully you'll get a little money out of it. I was going to say, would you give up the money to have your dad for the next 20, you know what I mean? I feel like course, there's give yes, and take here. There's, there's pros and cons to life. Yes, you might lose your father at a young age, but you're going to have a nice bank account. So, you know, there's pros yeah. and cons to everything. Correct. You have to, right. The answer, of course, is you'd rather have dinner or live till he's 100. But if given a choice, if I get a few bucks out of this, get a little <laughs> condo in Manhattan, hey, Tribeca, a little piece of the restaurant, whatever we're going to do. I love this decision we're making this new On behalf make. of Robert Dinner and his child. <laughs> but c congrats to Bob, and, and I'm thrilled he's going to have another child. I can't wait. We first moved away with Sebastian Mascalco. Me and Samson were on the Dan Lombard show talking top five Dinero movies. Uh, in case you missed it, my list was better, but you can go ahead and listen to it. But what I wanted to give Samson for credit for was this. He has mentioned this in the past, and I have mocked him. But the fact is, he listed the top 100 movies of all time. His personal favorites. This is not an American Film Institute. This is not IMDb. This is David Sampson's favorite 100 movies. He said, well, you got, you got to do this. And I said, I, I couldn't even imagine that kind of undertaking. You're enjoying it. You're doing it. I'm doing it. But I, I got to tell you, what I'm doing now is, Cody, because this is like a first draft. I'm just writing up movies that I really love. And then afterwards, then this is where it's going to get hard when you say... You know, is Unforgiven really 44 or is yeah. that more like 64? Like that's what's going to go. Right now I'm just doing the list, which is fun. I love that um, you're really enjoying this and you criticized it. I did. I criticized <laughs> it and I was like, that's a ridiculous. Uh, it's just so self-absorbed. Like does anybody care what my top on her list or David Sampson's list? And went, once he told me, I go, this is awesome. Because now what it is is, I mean, if you really did it properly, you would ignore your wife and children and your job and go, I'm just going to watch all these movies again. Because then I'm going to have to really evaluate 
you know, where does uh, Aitman outrank? I have it at 54, <laughs> but I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to watch it again. Okay, let's watch a little Black Sox again. I'm going to have to watch Memento. I have it at 55. Mad Max Fury Road, I have it at 56. So I'm up to 70 so far. I don't know how we're going to do this. I feel like at some point we should unveil this on Cinephile. But nobody wants to hear me do a top 100. So how, how, I'm going to give this to you. Maybe we do 100 to 90. We do a top 10 every week, whatever you want to do. Exactly. Gonna... I think that's how eventually it gets okay. rolled out and we, okay. we move down. I think that's how we're going to do it. But I, I, this is first draft right now. I will go through it and pour through it. But yeah, coming soon, top 100 movies. Uh, sorry to all those we offended last week, all the coffee drinkers. More than a few asked if I like tea. Um, not really. I mean, if I'm in a certain situation, if somebody offers me a coffee, I will always say no. If they, well, you must have a tea. If I feel like I'm going to offend them, like my, you know, my parents, friend's house or something, I'll occasionally have a tea. But again, the whole issue with the coffee, as I said before, squint, slurp, exhale. I went on Mystery Crate and kind of just, we were promoting our pods around the network and I was talking yeah. about Cinephile and I was like, yeah, Guardians of the Galaxy also. Adnan and I have made Cinephile an anti-coffee podcast, and that was not a popular take on Mystery Crate. Yeah, they, they were like, "Wait, why?" And they all they wanted they asked follow ups. I'm like, "Look, we both just don't drink it, so we thought let's just take this lane." But yeah, it did not go over well. But it's a polarizing topic. Yes, I knew there was going to be significant blowback, but I'm just thrilled by the ten to twenty percent that's on our side because yeah. they're out there. They so are. be proud. Morning brew, more Stand like morning strong. screw. Stand strong. Yeah, stay strong. You, yeah, you anti-coffee people. Real quick, congrats to the Panthers. We're going to knock out those Leafs in five. Ugh. I'd like to see that. And now I'm going to take out another big t- Like Now, here's the thing. I was cheering for the Knicks. Congrats to your Heat, by the way. But now if the Heat beat the Celtics and the Panthers beat the Cup file, like I, I don't even know what you guys are going to do right now. Like, it's amazing to It me. speaks to the value of late-season important games. The Heat and the Panthers both had to play their asses off to get into the playoffs. And these top seeds, like, you know, they know they're in the playoffs late in the year. And that's kind of what Paul Maurice, I think, was saying. You guys were saying on the pod, like on, on the Levitar show, you're like, well, we're playoff ready. All year he said we're going to play yeah. a different type of hockey. We're playing that type of hockey. So therefore, you don't have to shift to your war. It's not like a Jekyll and Hyde. Then we're going to play different. No, no. We've been playing the brand of hockey that will succeed in the playoffs. Yeah. Just continue what we're doing oh, and continue on that ascension. Love Maurice. Love him. Yeah, he's been awesome. It's been a great story. He's been enjoying himself, too. You can see he's joking around with Darren Pang on the bench yeah. and stuff. It's been good to see. Um, it's your birthday, by the way, on Saturday. It's coming up. So before I forget, next week, again, Eva Marie, which is going to be breathtaking, but also as a birthday gift to you, you're going to pick the old movie. Now, yes. before you think of what movie you want to do, I'm going to give you a few options of movies that I've never seen that I'm assuming you probably like. It's a lot of Adam Sandler, but I've never seen Billy Madison. I've never seen Happy Gilmore. Oh I've never God. seen The Waterboy. So oh I've never seen uh, with Rob Schneider, The Animal. So I'm assuming those are a few options, maybe something that, but whatever you like. It's your oh. birthday. I'm just telling you right now, there may be one of those you might want. We're a thousand percent either doing Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. I'll decide okay. later this week and I'll let you okay. know. But yes, that's right. coming soon easy. next week for Cody's birthday. Oh. Easy one, Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Michael J. Fox. I love Michael J. Fox. He was my favorite actor in the 80s. Again, he was short and he's Canadian. So of course I'm going to like him. And... I think we had like three channels growing up, and one of the few channels we were able to watch was Family Ties. NBC, must-see TV. I've talked to you before how much I love Night Court, but really, Family Ties was my jam. You know, I'm seven, eight, nine years old watching Family Ties in the mid-'80s. I still have a vivid memory, this Family Ties finale. My mom and I were out shopping, and I remember like just uh, happy Mother's Day, by the way, to all the great moms out there, Chris's mom yeah. and wife and my wife and mom. And uh, my mom's the best. She's like speeding. And I'm like, I'm like so upset. I'm like, mom, we're going to miss. Like, you don't realize in today's world, you have DVR. It's a different <laughs> world. Back then, I'm like, no, I'm going to miss it. It's the final episode of Family Ties. What's going to happen to Alex? He's going to college. She's like, I'm trying. I'm trying to drive as fast as I can. I'm sorry. I get home. And I, I used to record the, like, I still have the VHS episodes of Family Ties. I'm mean, popping in the VCR. You know, I'm going to record the final episode. So I love Michael J. Fox. And of course, Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies. I have it on my 
top 100. I think it's like number, yeah, you know, it's number 17 right now. Back to the future. Wow. It's in my top 100. Yeah, I love Back to the Future. So Michael J. Fox is my jam. I mean, uh, Teen Wolf is not my top 100, but I did really enjoy it. Recently showed it to my kids. But I watched all those movies. Secret of My Success, I loved. Watch it with my brother, watch it with my cousins. Even that dip where he made a lot of bad movies, I would still watch him. Like, Doc Hollywood is a movie that he didn't care about, box office hit. The Hard Way, which I own on DVD, he is quite fond of, didn't do particularly well, him and James Woods. I think it's great. Again, didn't make the top 100. He then had a stretch of, like, horrible movies early 90s. I still watch those. For Love or Money, Life with Mikey. Like, he had a few that were just terrible. Then he went back to Spin City. <laughs> so anyways, with all that as pretext, I love the guy, right? So I can't wait for this documentary. Comes out at Sundance. Davis Guggenheim's doing it. He's a, you know Academy Award winner. He did Inconvenient Truth, the Al Gore documentary. And I watched it, and I really enjoyed it, and Chris watched it as well. But my main quibble with it is this. It just wasn't long enough. And that's rare to say about movies. But it's, it's 87 minutes, a very scant running time for me. And like Michael J. Fox, it's very likable, and it's fun, it's breezy. But I thought it wasn't nearly in-depth enough, yeah. and I wish it had been a lot longer. And I talked to how much I love the Boris Becker documentary, which, by the way, i got to give a shout-out to uh, Metalarkers79, Howard Bryant, Kate Fagan, Amino Hassan. They talked about it. I haven't finished the episode yet, but boom, boom. And they love the documentary. Stunningly, my friend Rob Lemley, not a fan of the doc, but Bryant loved it. He's like, oh, Alex Gibney, heavy hitter. He, he knows who Gibney is. Kate Fagan, she likes the doc, but she goes, too much tennis. And I'm like, what? Like, I <laughs> That's like watching The Last Dance, too much basketball. I'm like, no, you're going to get basketball. It's about Michael Jordan. It's about <laughs> Boris Becker. But I knew Brian to be all in on it. He loves Boris. Although Lendl was his guy as a kid, so Boris took down Lendl. But I mean, had some good thoughts. Anyways, point is, that was three and a half hours Boris Becker. I wanted three and a half hours Michael J. Fox, and still I got 90 minutes. So we're going to go through different aspects of it. But your overarching theme, Cody, when you were watching it, what did you think of Still? I agree with a lot of your takes right here. Uh, I was not a big Michael J. Fox guy. Like, obviously, a little younger than you. I was aware of him. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't have that emotional connection to him. But I found it just interesting, like, just how he was this meteoric star. And then he realized this and then trying to hide it and then accepting it. Like, I, I, I just enjoyed the story of it. But I agree with you. I think they could have gone deeper into his fa Like, his family, they, they really just touched on... His they're, dad. Like, they're like good with it. Like his no, I mean like his kids and his wife. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, big time. They kind of hit on like how they treat him normal. They give him shit. They give they they joke around with him about stuff. Which he he's like God. If they were pitying me, this would yeah. be like. So I'm glad that they treat him that way. But you got like come on, we got to dig deeper on that. Like I know you treat him normal, but there's got like that. Like his wife has had such a hard. Like that yes. must be, it must have been so hard for his wife. I would have loved to just like peel that onion a little bit more. Great point. Needed a lot more of that. Because again, watching the documentary, I'm trying to figure out what stuff that I don't know. So right. it starts out with stuff that I do know, which is in 1990, his left pinky started twitching. He said it felt like it was a disembodied thing. He went, got the Parkinson's diagnosis. Uh, was drinking heavily at the time anyways, drank even more, was in denial, hit it, as you said, purposely chose movie projects where he was far away from home. Uh, at one point, someone asked him, what's it like being a dad? He's like, oh, it's great. He's like, oh, yeah, he's like, yeah, I come home, kids are asleep. <laughs> I yeah, go yeah. back to work, that's it. Like, he, he was dealing with a lot at the time. He already was, I think, in many ways a workaholic, but because of the Parkinson's diagnosis, and he's drinking and partying a bunch, he's in denial, he's trying to get away from it, all that stuff. That stuff I know. Family ties, how so he got the role. Yep, Gary David Goldberg didn't want to get him. He, he auditioned for it. He killed it. Brandon Tartikoff said, the executive said, he's proficient and he's funny, but I can't ever see him on a lunchbox. And then yeah. years later, Michael J. Fox sent 
sent him a lunchbox with his face on it. I'm like, yep. Again, I know these stories. These are fun stories. They're good to learn. Like, it's, it's cool. But I'm with you. I've never seen him with his family before. I've, I've read his books. I know his son's name is Sam. I know he's got twins. His daughter, Espen, was born after he already had Parkinson's. But I wanted a lot more of that. We get a couple of scenes. It's like one scene of him and Sam talking outside. We get a couple of scenes with the girls. And you're right. He talks about the fact, don't ever pity me. They, they, the one scene they're busting his chops, the fact he can't text. Because my text coming out is gibberish. So like yeah. Tracy Paul and his wife trying to help him. But I'm with you. I, and again, I get that it's first person. It's all Michael J. Fox talking to the camera. But you really could have used five minutes of Tracy Paul and his wife. You know, what's it like marrying this guy? who was the biggest star on the planet in the 80s? What's it like finding out he's Parkinson's? What's it like helping him through alcoholism? What's it like on a daily basis? Like what, what, what has happened when he forgot his meds or couldn't be in a situation? Right. Or You've sacrificed your career. for You were an actress as well. You've sacrificed for him. You've, you've just devoted yourself to Michael J. Fox Foundation and to raising children. And all we kind of got was through sickness and health. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, but like, this must have been really hard and a huge adjustment. Like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It could have used a lot more of that. For, for Sam, like, you know, I remember in the book, it said, you know, my son would joke me. He's like, oh, I have a shaky dad. You know, I call my dad shaky dad. Would have loved to hear his responses. Would have loved to hear his youngest daughter. Like, you're, you're born and your dad already has Parkinson's. Like, you don't even yeah. know who Michael J. Fox was as a phenomenon. The stuff that was also good that we could have used more of, too, was the physical therapy. I did like seeing, out of the gate, you're seeing him walking. Oh, and just and like how he, wa- like, he just... Well, he falls daily. Like he's try- he's trying to fight this and keep yeah. walking and stuff, and that's a struggle. And it's yeah, that part was really interesting and really sad. Yeah, like he's just walking the streets of New York, and he's there with a the guy, and he's like, yeah, people walk by and they pity me. He's like, you know, you can pity me all you want. Like I don't care. I'm a tough son of a bitch. Like I'll just keep going. But like, yeah, if you, if you broke- see him walking down the street, it like it's you know, what it's I mean? jarring. It, it it grabs your attention because he's all Correct. over the place. It's yeah. right. And he said, he goes, and then you can see the physical trainer trying to help him. So, you know, slow down, Michael. Okay, reset for a second. You know, get your bearings. But there's only so much you can do, right? Your brain's on your body, one thing. Your body lets you down. And he falls, as you said, a lot. He's like, I got a broken arm. I have broken cheekbones. Like, I just, there's nothing I could do. I'm trying to control my body. I can't. And, and he's a really good athlete. Bill Simmons made a great point, I think, in the Back to the Future pod that he did in the Rewatchables. He's like, because he's so athletic, a lot of the stuff that he does on camera comes across well. Picture Marty McFly on the hoverboard when he's running and you know, Biff's chasing him. Like, Michael J. Fox is a really good athlete. He was a really good hockey player in high school. And they've actually said with the Parkinson's, like, he's been able to, I wouldn't say stave off some of the symptoms, but deal with them better than most because he is athletic and can manipulate his body. And, and he's still, like, to this day, he's not fat. He's still pretty lean. You know, you can see him doing the exercises. But there's a really revealing moment. He says to one of the trainers, he says, there's just some days that I'm just tired of being Michael J. Fox. Like, I just wish I could just be, be somebody else. You know what I mean? Just relax. He's like, you know, it's okay to not always have on that persona. Could have used a lot more of instances and stories like that. It was interesting how he got to be like a magician with his medicine when he was trying yes. to hide it early in his career where he knew exactly when I need to take this pill to make sure that I could do this scene. And that part, like that struggle, man, that must have sucked. Yeah, seven years he hid it from people. And like he first found out you know, while shooting Doc Hollywood in Florida in 1990. So think about the fact, he's, particularly his left hand would be the one that would trim her. So there's a really great sequence that they show him hiding it. And he goes, I would always just keep something in my left hand. Yeah. So he's doing Spin City. He has a phone in his hand. He has a pen in his hand. He has a yeah. note card in his hand. Like he goes, because I just, that's how I would adjust. I would just have something in my hand. That way the character would be talking. I got yeah. like, that's, you're right. It's brilliant how he was doing it as a magician. That's the right word for it. To go back to his upbringing, again, he grew up. Uh, in Canada, grew up in just a, I believe in Burnaby, BC, a suburb of Vancouver. And again, they only talk about his dad. I would love to hear something about his mom. Like, like there's stuff about his dad, a little bit about his sibling, but like 
His mom's an important part of his life. I've read his book. I believe her name is Phyllis, if I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head. But they just talked about his dad. The dad relationship is interesting. He said, I'd come home, and his grades were horrible. C's and D's, because I was smoking and drinking. Got in a bunch of fender benders. And my dad, every time, like, God damn it, God damn it. He said, but then, you know, I took acting class, because that's where the girls were. I wanted to meet the girls. And he goes, I did it. I was pretty good. Teacher thought I was good. Did a CBC sitcom. It's a show in Canada, or network in Canada, called Leo and Me. It was a hit. And my acting teacher was like, you'll have it. You'll have an edge in America because you look like a kid. You can play a kid. So you should go to America and like pursue this because you can actually get more roles than you can in Canada. And he tells his dad. His dad shocks him. He's like, I want to do it. He's like, yeah. He's like, you think you can do it? He's like, yeah. He was absolutely of confidence. He's like, all right. So his dad funds the trip on his visa card. Like, this is a working class family. Drives him to Los Angeles, hangs out for a week or two. He gets a few callbacks. All right, buddy, you're on your own. And like, I think those stories to me are always impactful. How old was he there? How old was Michael 17? That's just 17. wild that the dad's just like, all right, you're here. See you later. <laughs> he just like leaves. He's yeah. like, right. I think the exact line is he said, if you want to be a lumberjack, you got to go to the goddamn forest. Yes. So he's like, all right. And he, and he takes him. Yeah, 17, dropping out of high school. All right, let's get after it. And at first, he has a, you know, a little bit of success, but he said it was three long years. And oftentimes, he was not successful. And I think probably the best part of the documentary is when David Skugenheim, you can hear his voice. Again, the, the camera's just on Michael J. Fox. And he says, you know, you're struggling for money. He goes, no, no, struggling to be generous. Like, yeah. like I had nothing. Like, he I goes, broke. I would, I, yeah, I, I zero. He's like, I'm, I'm paycheck, like, like I'm day to day. Like, he goes, I would eat the smuckers from IHOP. He's like, what? He's like, the, the jelly containers. Like, that, like, that's lunch. I would just eat those. Like, he goes, I had nothing. And he, he said, there's only one sink. The sink was in the bathroom. So he's like, you know, I'm mixing the palm olive with the detergent. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, it's like this is this is the box that I'm in. And then he gets family ties. And again, th- that story is amazing because it's like he, he auditioned for it. But Gary David Goldberg, the creator, didn't think he was right for it. But the laughs he got, him was like, this guy's incredible. And as I already mentioned, Tartikoff wasn't in. And he says, he goes, I'm going to get a phone call from my agent, but a potential seven-figure salary. At the same time, I don't have a $1.99 to go buy a chicken sandwich. Like, this was the disparity that his life was. And, then that, sh- back- and, that, and that show wasn't supposed to be... Uh, like centered around him yes. like right like like once they saw his the way he stole the show they're like all right we right. got to write this for this kid totally it was about the hippie parents uh michael gross and meredith baxter bernie michael and elise ah. and instead like no, no dude this guy's unbelievable and you're right he stole the show he's hysterical and then back to the future comes along great david goldberg tells him listen spielberg wants you to do this and here's how we're going to do it and that i thought and i've heard the show before but it's really impactful just the effort this guy was going through. Because everyone says, oh, actors, oh, you're trying so hard. Big, no, no, this, this is work ethic. He's getting picked up at 9.30 by one of the Teamsters. Yeah. Goes to Family Ties. He shoots it from 10 until 6. Teamster picks him up, then takes him to the Back to the Future. He shoots that until 4 in the morning. Teamster would oftentimes pick him up from the car and carry him, put him in his bed. He'd sleep four hours tops. Again, start the next process. Teamster comes in. but He, he, he would give him a key. He'd open up his door, pot of coffee, start the shower. All right, Mike, let's get up. Boom, started again. Got in it for three and a half months. And he just said the weekends he did nothing. Like he just slept. Like you're sleeping three, four hours a night, five days a week, functioning on the biggest show in the country in Family Ties and what ended up being the biggest movie of the year in Back to the Future. Like that's insane. It's like my schedule in college just without the acting. <laughs> you weren't sleeping much, just trying to juggle all the partying. It was partying, all Partying, class, Cody. partying, yeah. class. It's hard out here, man. You're, you're still, still known for that at FAU. Um, 
anyways, his career, of course, skyrockets, and he does... Again, I would have liked a little more on the movies themselves. Like, you know, Secret of My Success is a personal favorite. Parkinson's Diagnosis. We've talked about the denial, the alcoholism. When he won the honorary Oscar, by the way, a few years ago, it was great because Woody Harrelson gave him the award. And Michael J. Fox said, he's like, oh, yeah, me and Woody did some damage back in the day. And they started laughing. Apparently, those guys used to party it up like you wouldn't believe, which is just a funny image. Picture Woody Harrelson from Cheers yeah. and Michael J. Fox and Family Ties just getting after it on the streets of Los Angeles. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, but again, after that, I think the story is more fairly well known. He does a bunch of movies. Again, would have liked more on those movies. Casualties of War is a movie that got mixed reviews. I call it a flawed, great movie, which sounds like an oxymoron. But it's got some great moments, but it's not a great movie. But him and Sean Penn together, directed by Brian De Palma, war film. That was a big risk for him. It was like Michael J. Fox, you know, cute little guy, sweet. And all of a sudden, he's in this R-rated, intense Vietnam movie. And I, I think he's got moments that are terrific. But again, the movie itself has some flaws. The bookends don't really work. Work, but I would have loved some stuff about Casualties of War because I know that was a movie he felt like I got to take a chance here and it did not work out. Box office failure, mixed reviews, but again, I think over time people appreciate that movie. There's a terrific documentary about Brian De Palma on HBO. He tells a funny story. He says Sean Penn was a total jerk to Michael J. Fox because in the movie they're adversarial. So he said, Michael is a very likable guy because if you meet Michael, he's like literally, as you'd expect, very likable. And he goes, and Sean purposely froze him out without telling Michael. Like, they're on set, and Sean would just ignore him, wouldn't talk to him. He's like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. And he goes, he kind of got in his head. And he said, at one point, and I know this scene, Sergeant Meserve is Sean Penn's character, Michael J. Fox's character, I can't remember his name, but he whispers in his ear. And De Palma said what he whispered in his ear was, nothing but a television actor. <laughs> like, he's pissing off Michael J. Fox during the movie. Like, he's goading him and stuff. So, again, I would have loved that story in the document just to hear Michael J. Fox. Like, do you like Sean Penn? Do you think Sean Penn's a dick to yeah. this day? The guy treated you like crap. Like, yeah. I'm always curious with stuff like that. Do you, in the moment, go, well, I guess he's taking it really serious. He's a method actor. And then afterwards, we shake hands. Or do you go, no, this guy's a douche. Like, right. We, we, we can do both. Like, we can be friendly and still be jerks and do each other. Yeah, you got to ask that. You got to ask that. But that would have been nice. Um, again, I, I think it takes real bravery of Michael J. Fox to be this open, to be this candid about his life. As Chris and I said, seeing him with his family, uh, seeing the dyskinesia, like, you know, the, the fact, the constant shaking, the moving. And, and he said, you know, it, it's getting harder. He's like, I'm not, I don't know how many more years I got left here, but I've got four grown kids. I'm eager to what I've seen. And, and he said it himself, he's like a cockroach. He's like, I'm a tough guy. And he certainly is. What he has been through is amazing to think about. And, you know, you often think about what if, you know. I, my son Yusuf, I was showing it to him, and he goes, you know, do you think he's been lucky? Do you think he's had terrible luck? And I said, why do you think he's been lucky? He said, well, in the 80s, he was the biggest actor in the world. He was in Family Ties, Back to the Future. I'm like, yeah. He goes, but then he said, horrible luck. He had Parkinson's when he was 29. And I said, well, I, I think he's really lived a full life. I think he's gone the gamut from, like, the highs and the lows. But what's interesting about Michael J. Fox is he himself is a huge optimist. And he has said, he goes, part of the key in my journey is that I am an incurable optimist. And even in the midst of all of this... Like, no one's feeling sorry for me, and I don't feel sorry for myself either. And as you said, people down the street see him, and they kind of give him that look. And he's like, whatever, man. I'm just going to keep going. So in his own mind, he does not have self-pity, but it is natural to think about it. What would his life have been like if he didn't have this diagnosis? I mean, 29 years old. As he said, he goes, when he got the diagnosis, I'm like, there's no way. Parkinson's is an old man's disease. It's in your 60s and 70s. And he's also said, and I don't know about this. So you have to check with your local doctor. But he... he, he in part blames himself. He goes, I, you can't say for sure. He goes, like, I was drinking and partying a lot. I don't know how that might have impacted my brain chemistry, whatever it was. He goes, like, I, I don't know. He's like, but this is, this is the, the hand that, that life dealt me. Other stuff I would have liked, by the way, that they did not do. Again, I'm, I'll give it three people leaves because I love Michael J. Fox, but here's what they also should have done. Because he really credits Dennis Leary. They're hockey buddies. And he said, Dennis cast me and rescued me. And it was so great because he gave me a really unlikable role. I played a guy in a wheelchair, but like I'm a total jerk. And I was so grateful that Dennis gave me that because, again, my roles are always the same stuff. Nice guy, sweet guy. 
boy next door, whatever. He goes, so he gave me like a real dick. And he goes, and this was while I had Parkinson's. He's like, no, we're going we're gonna to play this up. You're going to wheelchair me, you're a total asshole. And he's like, great. He said, I was so happy that he gave it to me. And then on a comedic level, Larry David gave him that on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. When he purposely playing up the Parkinson's, he's, he's just being a jerk. He's shaking the Diet Coke on purpose. And Larry's like, oh, what the hell? And he's like, oh, Parkinson's, sorry. So like, <laughs> I, I do think he's a guy who's leaned into it as much as possible, both for comedic effect and dramatic effect, which again is a credit to Michael J. Fox not hiding from this and being up up front about it. It's uh, it's amazing to see. I would have liked a little a little bit there on curve. There was like a dark part where he was asked about like what the future looks like, and yeah. I don't know if it was optimistic or dark. Where he was like, they kind of asked like, what does twenty years look like? And he's like, I'm either going to be cured or it's going to be it's not going to be pretty. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so it's like it was like a thing. It's like, does he still hold out hope that they'll find some kind of cure? Like that must be dark place, you know, where you're just kind of like hoping that someday some. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. He's like either I'm, I'm going to be. You're right. He said I think on the interview the other day I saw he said I'm not going to make it to 80. Like I know that. Like I'm in my I'm in my early 60s right now and it's getting really hard now. And even he says to one point David Scoogum he goes I'm in intense pain right now. He's like really? He's like oh yeah. He's like when the meds wear off like I'm in intense pain. Because you yeah. haven't once complained to me. He's like well it didn't come up. I'm like <laughs> if you yeah. asked me how you doing. Point, like, yeah, I'm in yeah. pain. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, this is the way it is. And it, that that style of always just being that charm of his and that humor, he uses it to such a great level. Even the one time you see him fall down, the woman's like, oh, my God, on the street. And he's like, it's okay. You knocked me off my feet. Like, you can tell yeah, he's got yeah, yeah. all these one lines that he uses to, to kind of disarm people and make them charming. He's yeah. an incredible guy, incredible actor. Wish him the best, as always. Still, a Michael J. Fox Life, which is available on Apple+. Plus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's talk a little David Milch, life's work, co-creator of NYPD Blue, which is a really historic show, really important show, influential. And then, of course, Deadwood, an awesome Western on HBO. His book is amazing. As I said off the top, he's got dementia, Alzheimer's. And this book was written, I think it came out in January of last year, if I'm not mistaken, or January of this year. So I, I can't even imagine how much he's deteriorated from now. I wish we could speak to him, but there's no way he's obviously doing any press. Um, but his stories are amazing. The, the big thing he talks about is the fact that as a kid... 
you know, his dad was a doctor and he goes, his dad had two sides himself. His dad was a doctor, but also loved gambling and he, a little bit of philandering. So he goes, I think in some ways he goes, my older brother, Bob is a doctor and like the best person I know. He dedicates the book to Bob. He goes, but I'm, I'm kind of like the other half of my dad. Like I love the gambling. I love the, the party and all that kind of stuff. So he goes, in a weird way, I think my dad was always kind of proud of me because he was like, he was disgusted me with also proud of me. Cause he's like, I wish you're more like your brother who's brilliant and a doctor like me, but you did get that part of me too, which is the gambling. <laughs> like he loves going to the ponies, loves going to the track, takes his dad there. But it's interesting. Here, here, here's a good way of describing his father. My mother used to say he was a small town boy from a big city. My dad was a good catch. He was a Jewish doctor, older, what's not to like. Besides the flagrant philandering, he was a hard player, drank a lot. He had residual consequences from a terrible car accident. Every three months for 30, 40 years, he had to have dilatations, put a rod up his penis, used catheters and sounds to get the urine out. This guy's obviously living a tough life here. Later on, he's talking about some of the stories he would do on NYPD Blue, which was a really, again, influential show. It's the first show they put a little cursing on TV, a little bit of nudity. And Stephen Bochco, very famous you know, TV guy, is co-creating it with him and says, that's what's going to get the headlines. You know, This many ABC affiliates are not going to carry tonight's NYPD Blue episode because we see a half a boob. Because uh, you know, Dennis Franz is Andy Sipowitz is going to say, son of a bitch. So all of a sudden, <laughs> that's getting headlines in USA Today. Oh, how about this edgy new show? But what you're not missing is the fact the show is really smart and gritty and different. And Milch talks about the writing, how he's hanging out with cops trying to find different things. And he goes, at one point I did a story, Detective Belker brings in a male prostitute named Eddie Gregg, who was based on my friend Eddie Grundy. Eddie Gregg was played by Charles Levin, a young curly-haired Jew, but the real Eddie was black. He would take the train from New York to New Haven to bring me my methadone. I didn't want my name on any list, so I had him get it for me. He turned tricks sometimes, and he had dentures. And if he really liked somebody, he'd take the dentures out and do them toothless. <laughs> He's like, so he's like, he's basing these stories on people that he actually knows. At the same time, he's so immersed in his work, he's completely absent-minded. And one thing while reading Life's Work by David Milch, I kept realizing, just like Michael J. Fox, these guys are really honest, man. Like, if you and I write a book, we're going to hide our our worst features. We're going to, you know, leave it a couple of flaws. Because who wants to have their entire life exposed like this? Milch just lets it all hang out. How about this? There's another day Rita left me for about 30 minutes with Ben and Elizabeth. Those are his two kids. And they're two best friends, who are also brother and sister. Two four-year-olds and two two-year-olds. They entertained themselves, and I had money on the football game. Rita returned and pointed out they had drawn all over the walls of the room we were sitting in and asked if I thought I would have noticed had they set themselves on fire. Like I said, I had a football game to watch. <laughs> this guy is just is completely neglecting everything he needs to do. But he's also got good stories. There's one story he tells about you know when his father had passed away, there was unresolved grief. And he said, I had this crazy dream years later with me and my dad. And, and he, he writes with the dialogue and he goes, dad, uh, it's good. To see. He goes, I'm in a restaurant. I see my dad. And I go, dad, it's good to see you. Like, how are you? It's great to see you. And my dad says, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty, you know, I'm dead. I'm dead, you know, but I feel pretty good. <laughs> and Bill says, geez, I'm so glad. I always, whatever the reason, I'd never been doing that great, you know, when you were alive. I'm so glad to be able to see you again, to let you know things are well. I'm married. I have children. His dad says, what's that supposed to mean? He says, it doesn't mean anything. I'm just glad to tell you, you know, let you know this. The dad says, so am I supposed to feel guilty? You didn't, you couldn't do well when I was alive? He said, no, I'm just saying. He goes, what? Are you going to break my balls? I'm dead. I'm dead. I've got my own problems. He said, never mind. Good to see you. He goes, yeah, go fuck yourself. (laughs) He says, I woke up. I didn't know what to make of that. Within five minutes, the same bullshit that used to go on between us when he was alive was going on in the dream. And I was so sad. But later on, he went and visited a therapist. He said, that's actually... It's a good thing. He's like, what? He's like, because it's called an extension of your reality. Like, you're, you're reliving what you and your father would have done. It's actually a good thing that happened to you. He's like, okay. Another story I got to tell you. So he's, 
again, he's making a ton of money. At one point, I think on NYPD Blue, they said he was making like $5 million a year. Over the course of nine years, I think he made $50 million. Oof. But he is going to the track. So he says, in the first year of NYPD Blue, the money meant I could buy more horses, which I did. One of them was Gilded Time, who had become the best two-year-old in the country for a bit. He was racing in the Breeders' Cup in Florida, so I flew about 60 people down there for a race. My business manager calls and says, not for nothing. If the horse loses, those people are stranded because you don't have the money to fly them all back. (laughs) So I call my agent and say, get me a script to fix because this fucking horse is no cinch. I'm in my hotel room doing rewrites on Bad Boys because it was originally intended for, I think, John Lovitz and Dana Carvey. And now they wanted me to yes. revise it. It made sense for Will Smith and Martin Lawrence. The producer, Don Simpson, is berating me over the phone. Like, what would you say you wrote for? The Munsters? I don't give a shit. I owe it to a film that have at least six writers work on it. Then the horse wins. We go back to LA. They asked me to do some more work on the script. I said, I'm good. I said, what if we tell Don to tone it down? He goes, tell him to go fuck himself. Tell him to go hit by a fucking bus. My horse won. I'm out. <laughs> this is the life of David Milch, a life's work. He's just, he's just balls to the wall. But eventually, at some point, you've got to pay the rent. Uh, the stories on Deadwood are great. At one point, he, he asked this character. Again, he's thinking about his father. And he's kind of ad-libbing on the set. He goes, I was never very good about getting the lines to the actors soon enough. Because Jimmy Smith's left in season four, season five at NYPD Blue. He goes, I'd love to tell you he wanted to go work on movie projects. But I think it was because of me. Because I, w- I would just get in the scripts late. And he'd be like, you know what? F this guy. <laughs> He's like, I'm out of here. Like, Bill's just so honest about it. Anyways, they're on Deadwood. And there's this one scene. He goes, I see this guy. And, you know, he can't talk, but he can do tricks. So he says, I have a rope-making machine. I said, that's good. That's good. But something more involved. He said, I can cry at will. Now we've got a game. He goes, great. But I don't want him to have to speak. So I have him make a sign. Can cry at will. Again, this is a Western. Set in the 1870s. He holds it above his head. That's his act. Then there's another guy. And I say, go over to him and say, I couldn't cry for my father when he passed away. I give you a dollar if you weep for him now. So we do that. Then a little later in the scene, you pan back. And the guy with the sign is sobbing. And the drunk who couldn't cry for his own dad looks at him and says, of course it's easy for you. You didn't know the cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> David Milch, a life's work. That's story after story like that's great. The big jaw dropper is this. And again, this is not spoiling anything because you can do a quick Google search on David Milch. I wasn't sure the exact details. Cody's mouth is going to be on the, on the ground when I tell you this. So again, he does NYPD Blue, makes $50 million. He does Deadwood, huge hit for HBO. HBO eventually says after three seasons, the show's really expensive. It costs $4.5 million to do. Can we, instead of doing 10 episodes, do like six? Like, the best I can do is six. And most of like, again, kind of as you can tell by his attitude, like, no, go fuck yourself. You don't want to do it? Fine, I don't care. I'll do whatever. I'm like, that's it. We're canceling the show. He's like, whatever. I want to do 10 episodes. You don't want to do 10 episodes? Fine, screw you. So I'm like, all right. But he's spending money like crazy at the track. Eventually, he gets, his wife gets a call from the lawyers. He says, we got to talk. He's like, all right. He's like, we're in, we're in, we're in. We're in trouble. He's like, okay. He's like, in the last 10 years, David spent $23 million at the track. And she's like, what? He's like, yeah. And he's like, so he owes $17 million to the IRS. And she's just flummoxed. She's like, why are you telling me now? Like, how, how did this get to this spot? Like, I'm going to deal with David. But like, how did you guys not tell me? You're the lawyers. You're his financial advisors. And they go, honestly, we didn't want to say anything because we were worried that we'd get fired. Yeah, I mean, that's how it works, I guess. <laughs> right? Like, if you said, I don't want to screw you, I'll get into somebody else then. Yeah. And the story in the book, it's so nonchalant. He gets home and she tells him, I got a call. You, you spent $23 million on the track. We owe $17 million. And he's just like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. I thought you only pay taxes when you win. I don't, I'm yeah. confused why like, you owe more taxes when you lose gambling. I thought that you yeah, only... Yeah, that part, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but 
Suffice to say, he had maybe a lot of because demons. maybe it's just because he wasn't paying his taxes because of all the gambling. Maybe it could be that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that makes sense. He's just using all his money just gambling. He owes all yeah. his money. Yeah. So suffice to say, he's incredibly honest about his life and his demons. He was diagnosed with being bipolar at that point. Goes and sees a therapist. Gets suboxone. He goes and again. He had a lot of drug problems early in his life. He tells a story about being on heroin in college. He goes, here's white privilege for you. He goes, I'm blasted out of my mind on heroin and acid. And I started shooting out a cop car's lights. Like, I was just like, at a gun, and like, shooting away. And the cop comes up. He's like, um, you know, what's going on here? And he goes, I think he was going to Yale at the time. And he goes, again, white privilege kid going to Yale? No problem. Because I'm black. I'm in prison. Like, I'm dead. I'm just like, yeah, sorry. I was just shooting. I was just, I was just practicing my target practice. I happen to see your car in my way. Sorry about that. He's like, all right, I'll let you off with a warning. He's like, what? Like, he goes, this is part of the problem in life is that you should get, you should be punished. It's like, yeah, whatever happens, kids. Guy's high. He's drunk. Shooting up a cop car. But listen, all these stories aside, the guy's a genius of a writer. If you go back and watch some episodes of Deadwood, the way he wrote for Ian McShane's character, Al Swearingen, incredible. Um, he did the show Luck. By the way, I mentioned the ponies. The reason why he was doing a lot of stuff with the ponies is they had a show called Luck on HBO. Dustin Hoffman starred in it, Dennis Farina, Nick Nolte, Michael Mann directed it. There's really good stories about that show and the fact it failed. But he goes, I'm not blaming the show, but I was trying to do research for the show. He goes, listen, I always love the ponies anyways, but I really got into gambling when I was researching the show, and I tried to get that. <laughs> that is such a cop-out. Yeah. <laughs> It was research. I'm like, no, no, you, you yeah. have a serious gambling problem. That's it. But it just I, makes you think about addictions. Like, could you imagine, Chris, if somebody said to you, I lost $20 million, dude, like, what happened? I was honestly just thinking about that the last minute or two while you were talking. Like, that probably doesn't even sniff the top 10 in terms of celebrity <laughs> athletes that have lost big money. Like, how, I bet Jordan's lost more than $23 million. Like, yes. these people that have that this much money, I mean, right. granted, that's like from what you said about half of his net worth. So that's a yeah. lot for the him. Yes. But like, you know, I bet Barkley has lost millions. I'm just being reckless right now. But these yeah, really yeah, rich, right. these really rich people that we know to be gamblers, and as somebody who gambles on a much smaller scale, correct? You don't, you don't win. When would you realize that I'm in too deep? Like, if I lose a hundred bucks in a week, I'm like, whoa, you need to slow down, you, you <laughs> animal. You, you're, you know, you have a, you have a child. What kind of monster right. are you? You so can like, put up the guardrails at a hundred bucks. You realize, like, okay, that was, that was this was not a good week, right? right. Like, I'll put in a couple of twenty dollars parlays, and if I've lost four by the end of the week, I'm like, I'm down eighty bucks this weekend. Like, what is this for? I could see this being a slippery slope. Yeah, as you said, when you have that, you and I can't relate to this. When you have that kind of money rolling in, it made fifty million MIPD blue, right? So you got fifty mil, I'm like, dude, and and so the way, by the way, the way they got out of it, he goes, he goes, honestly, he goes, if you're very rich in this country, it's better to lose a lot of money rather than a little bit of money. A little bit of money is very hard. If you lose a lot, he goes, you can figure it out. They sold the house in Martha's Vineyard, nine million bucks, gone. Sold their house in L.A., four million bucks, gone. Got a little rental house. Oof. Worked on a payment plan. Like it's ridiculous. He goes, I was like, he goes, and then he gets the diagnosis, dementia, and Alzheimer's. He's like, I can't even write. He's like, I, I wish I could give you all my money, but my, my mind's going. And he's like, in the morning, I'm pretty lucid. Like I know who I am. But by the afternoon, he's like, I'm a disaster. He's like, I don't, I don't know where I am. I don't, know, I don't know. I'm David Milch. I, I live at a home now. Like it's, it gets very sad when you're like Damn. this guy. I wouldn't say he squandered his talent because he used his talent. His talent is clearly in these shows. But you feel like if he had just been able to kind of get things together a little bit better, things could have been even better. Having said that, this was a guy who had a serious drug problem on heroin and acid as a college graduate and still somehow overcame those issues. Um, it's a remarkable book. Seriously, you should check it out. It's called Life's Work by David Milch. And if you don't know his work, you should check out NYPD Blue or Deadwood among the stuff he's done. And I did like Luck. I remember. And it only lasted, by the way, one season HBO. They renewed it for a second season. What happened is one of the horses died. 
And then another horse died, and HBO's like, do you want to just like, kill the show? They're like, yeah, probably should do that, because the, the animal rights groups are not treating this well. I, I think it's hard to do a show about horse racing without some horses dying. Like, I, right. Quite simply, he was like, this is going to happen. As we learned in this Kentucky Derby, it's hard to do anything with horses without horses dying. <laughs> right. He's like, this is going to happen. So if you don't want to take the heat for it, let's just move on. When, but did, horses, did, when did horses become so fragile? Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know the think. science behind it. Like, why do they die so quickly? <laughs> I know. Norm- normally, you're like, oh, they're strong equestrians. It's just because if they have any issue, right, they have to just, like, they yeah, can't once deal it's gone, with stuff. So it's like, if any, I don't like, that's pretty vivid. But, like, you know, put them down is what we call yeah. it. Yeah. No, you're, no, that's the <laughs> way of putting it. You're I don't right. think they, they don't take them in the back and they're like, uh, I don't know. I'm sure, it's I'm, I'm assuming I've seen my dog. Like you know, I'm on my late in my dog's life. It's just a yes. shot, then then they no, go to right, sleep yeah. and they don't wake up again. <laughs> it's horrible to think about. <laughs> That's the, the last group. The upset. last time I saw my dad weeping. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I'm not a dog guy, as you know. People always joke about are you a kid guy, a dog guy. I love kids. I have four kids. I love everyone's kids. Dogs not my it's, thing. But it's, it's usually cat or dog, not kid or dog. No, it is. It's kid or dog. Because Larry Davidson goes, most people are kids or dogs. And he goes, I'm a rarity. I like neither. I don't. I don't care for other words. I'm always pro kid. If I'm in the office, I'm goes, hey, my. If you if you you and I are together, like, oh man, let me show you this video. Of my daughter, I will always look at. It. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's great. That's cool. That's great. All oh, my my son. Dog videos whatever. now. Dog video. I I'll, I'll be polite, but I, I'm not interested. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah. No, my dog. He did this cool trick. I'm like, I, I don't. I don't care about a dog guy. It's not my thing. All right. <laughs> Let me know. Tweet us now. Cinephile pod. Dog guy or kid guy. Chris thinks it's a dog or but if it's dog or cat, I would go dog if I had to choose. Cat's yeah. too finicky. I would choose a dog if need be. Of course. Again, you, you guys have a dog, right? Or yeah. No? yeah I was well, my parents dog. do. I've had dogs. I don't currently have one, but yeah, I'm a dog. Person. But I could definitely see you being a dog guy. There's no question. Levitard must be a dog guy. Oh yeah, he's the kind of guy that brings his dog into Publix. Yeah, see that's. And it's not a, it's not a, you know, a support dog. You know what support. I mean? It's, he brings his just regular dog into Publix. <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. Cinephile Pod, as always, you can tweet us. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much for your support. Go Panthers, go Heat, and next week, Eva Marie. I'll see you at the movies. Yeah.